847 is 366 and 7. Hello and welcome to A Score to Settle, a podcast about movie and TV music. I am your host, Brian McVicker. I hope everybody has had a good week. Regardless of when you're listening to this, I hope it's been a good week for you. I wanted to, on today's episode, I wanted to uh, talk a bit about the composer Bernard Herrmann. Bernard Herrmann is an interesting, really fascinating figure uh, from uh, the Hollywood uh, movie music community um, in that he, uh, you know, scored movies around the time that uh, was is usually considered Hollywood's uh, golden age, uh, where you had composers uh, such as Max Steiner and Alfred Newman uh, sort of setting the groundwork for what movie music was. Um, and a lot of what they brought to movie music was from uh, a uh, traditional uh, sort of European um, post-romantic concert classical world. But along comes Bernard Herrmann, uh, specifically in uh, 1941 with Citizen Kane, and he brought a different sensibility. And he, uh, even though his his career, you know, was concurrent with those other you know giants of the industry, um, his sound was never really a part of their sound and the sound that is considered a, a part of the golden age of, of Hollywood. And so uh, sometimes in talking to people about film music and particular composers. You know, sometimes the question goes to, well, you know, what does this person's, you know, music sound like? Or what does that person sound like? Or if you're listening to this score from this composer, if you didn't know that that composer wrote that music, how do you know that that person, you know, actually wrote that music? And Bernard Herrmann is one of those with a very distinct sound and a very distinct style. And so in this, uh, in this episode, I kind of wanted to talk about what does Bernard Herrmann sound like? What are the... Uh, elements of his style. If you were to start a movie and you didn't know that he did the music for it, would you be able to pick it out? Would you be able to say, yes, that's Bernard Herrmann because of this, because of the way he uses that instrument or the way he approaches that scene? So I kind of wanted to go through some examples, just sort of what does make a Bernard Herrmann score sound like a Bernard Herrmann score? Uh, So I I thought it'd be uh, interesting to go through some of those examples of, you know, where you can kind of pinpoint um, you know, the, the facets of his sound. Um, I think it's pretty interesting, uh, to see it and trace it throughout his career, um, through, through movies, uh, from Citizen Kane all the way up into 1975, um, with his last film, which was Taxi Driver. So one of the first things, uh, that always comes to mind, uh, when, talking about Bernard Herrmann or, uh, you know, a lot of his scores is, this sounds, you know, really simple, but he really liked and used a lot of low woodwinds. His, his first film score, uh, for Citizen Kane in 1941 begins with, uh, just these really low woodwinds and like, uh, in, in bass clarinets and, um, and just as low registers as he can get. And often through his career, um, he would favor a lot of low instrumentation, whether it was in the woodwinds or in the brass. Um, but I always found that one of the hallmarks, and this is just a very particular thing as far as instrumentation, but one of the hallmarks of his of his sound was 
those uh, those low woodwinds, uh, which we can hear um, here at the uh, at the opening of Citizen Kane. So the uh, the interesting thing about um, his use of low woodwinds is just those really dark sonorities uh, tended to suit his personality. Um, and uh, I've thought about it as far as his music goes, and there have been other people that have written about this as well. So it's it's not like it's um, you know no one's ever said this before, but um, he uh, he was a moody person, I guess it sounds really like an understatement, but uh, he was kind of known to be irascible. Um, but uh, he also um, could be, you know, sentimental at times. And, you know, I think with his personality, it seems like I often wondered with the movies that he did, um, are is it the case where he sought out movies where he could express, you know, some of those, uh, the darker side of himself through the, the music? Or was it just happenstance that these projects that required darker sonorities found him? Um, because he didn't really get uh, too many happy projects. <laughs> he didn't get too many movies that uh, you know that, that required him to be um, you know really zestful, I guess. Uh, but you know he he still you know uh, had such a wide variety as far as his you know the the projects that he did cover you know uh, in his career um, from forty one up till seventy five. Um, and, but Citizen Kane is, is, you know, it's, it's, it's an amazing way to start a career. It's, it's, you know, for both him and director and star and writer and producer Orson Welles, uh, they both kind of came out of the gate with all, again, you know, all guns blazing. And, uh, once you start at the top, it's just kind of hard to maintain that, uh, level of, of quality. But, uh, Herman's career, you know, um, it, his music never really, uh, suffered, um, so, you know, again, just thinking about the hallmarks of what is our, you know, what does a Bernard's Herman score sound like? You know, like I said, there was the, the low instrumentation. So, you know, you hear, like I said, low woodwinds. He also liked a lot of low brass and low strings. Um, and the other thing that he, uh, oftentimes would do is, um, and you hear this in, you know, the main titles of North by Northwest and, and Vertigo, um, where he almost sets up it's it's more of a rhythmic pattern than it is a melody that you're following. Um, in North by Northwest, the main title is a Spanish dance, a fandango, and it basically just sort of repeats. So he sets up this you know rhythm, and he just repeats it and repeats it and repeats it. And there's not really like a, a tune, an eight bar or sixteen bar tune that you're following, um, but yet it's still you know insanely catchy um and he often would uh sort of do this his structure his cues where it's oftentimes like a repeated cell of of music almost like uh you know and he would take that cell and just maybe repeat it and then repeat it in a different octave and then you know move it to a different you know part of the orchestra or he would add instruments to it if it started with only a few uh, parts of the orchestra playing it, just the strings playing that cell, that, you know, piece of that motif, that music, uh, then he could add in the woodwinds, then he could add in brass, and they're all still playing the same thing over and over again. Um, but it, when it works with the images on screen, it really drives uh, 
the the sequence uh, forward and really kind of uh, pulls you in sort of hypnotically. Um, but his, uh, as far as, you know, again, a hallmark of, of his style, um, like I said, you can find it in, uh, we'll start here with the, uh, the main title for um, North by Northwest, just, you know, a sample of it um, and how that rhythm just continues and continues. Um, and next time you watch the movie, pay attention to the last 10, 15 minutes and the, uh, the finale sequence, uh, at Mount Rushmore, um, and how basically, you know, he's catching some sync points in action, but pretty much he's just playing through that whole sequence with the, the Fandango and he's just continuing forward until he needs to hit a point where he has to catch something dramatic. Um, but you'll hear a little bit and you'll hear some of that here in the, uh, uh in the main title from North by Northwest. were there and uh, just being amazed at the that music for for the main title I probably was maybe 10 or 11 years old and uh, I think that was probably my first introduction or at least the earliest introduction I can recall of Bernard Herman and just being fascinated by how big that main title sounded and how impressive it was and how it drives forward at a point where you almost think it's out of control but it just still maintains control but at any point, it could fly off the handle, you feel like. Um, and I just thought that was so wonderful and, um, and just you know, it really stuck with me. But uh, yeah, so that was a favorite, uh, an early favorite of mine. But the other one that I mentioned as far as those main title sequences uh, was Vertigo, which is really rightly, you know, uh, mentioned as one of his uh, favorite, uh, one of the favorite scores by him, but also Bernard Herrmann himself. Uh, also really uh, took to the subject matter. But, you know, both of these movies uh, sort of bring us into talking a little bit about his partnership with the director, Alfred Hitchcock. So oftentimes when people talk about Bernard Herrmann, the first thing they go to is Hitchcock and maybe Orson Welles with Citizen Kane. But, you know, when he worked with Hitchcock on the 12 movies that they did, it really set a stamp. And people talk about how only Herrmann could have actually musically provided what the Hitchcock style is, um, as far as like what Hitchcock brought to his movies visually and narratively, um, Herman was the best at getting that, distilling that down into a musical essence. And whether it was 
the excitement of, of North by Northwest, or whether it was the obsessive qualities of Vertigo, or whether it was the madness of, of Psycho, um, Herman was the best at actually distilling that, as well as a bittersweet quality. And that's the other thing that I find as far as a hallmark of Herman's music is his music was just really bittersweet. Even if he did, you know, he didn't do very many romances or, or, or love stories. Um, at least ones that didn't really end happily that I can recall. Um, but in all of his movies, uh, you know, in all of his, his music, there was oftentimes if, you know, if it didn't require, you know, outright fear or suspense or, you know, um, you know, uh, terror or excitement, um, his music was often really bittersweet and melancholy. Um, and Vertigo, you know, is, is a prime example to that in that he has this obsessive quality which you hear in the main title, um, and, you know, later on, uh, as, you know, the, the character sort of becomes obsessed over, um, you know, the, the woman in the film, it, that there is this melancholy that really musically defines both the lead characters in the movie. Um, and so we'll hear a little bit of the main title here. So um, that that sense of longing um, you can really get out of um, other cues in Vertigo. That main title, though, that really truly pretty much just paints the obsessive quality of it, and that it keeps circling and circling. And and in a way, like um, the main title of North by Northwest, that it's getting a lot of mileage out of a small amount of melodic material and just sort of spinning it and spinning it and spinning it, and it just becomes uh, kind of like a whirlpool that's pulling you in. And so musically, it kind of describes, I think, what happens to James Stewart's character in the movie, um, the detective, uh, Scotty, that as he gets obsessed um, with the Kim Novak character, that it just kind of pulls him in, pulls him in, pulls him in until he's just making nothing but irrational decisions as the movie reaches its uh, its climax. But that one's a great, a great example and really fit Herman's 
personality. And I think that's one of the things that, that I come back to a lot with these composers where talking to other fans or people who kind of want to learn more about it is recognizing their sound is a lot like recognizing their personality. Um, and some of these composers, their personality came out in their music, whether they meant it or not. And it's one of the reasons why I think as a fan, you develop favorites, whether it's Herman or Williams or Jerry Goldsmith, where something about their personality came out in their music and it's strong and it's, it's persistent through everything that they did. It didn't matter whether they were scoring a Western or a thriller or a romance that it's like, Oh, that sounds like Jerry Goldsmith. Oh, that sounds like Bernard Herman. And it was their personality. It was their stamp. Sometimes it was, you know, like I've been talking about specific instruments they like to use or their approach to a cue. Um, but a lot of times it just is that sound is their personal stamp. And they don't, you don't find it too often, you know, um, in, uh, in music, it's tough to sort of have that distinctiveness. Um, but the other thing that I, you know, in terms of the thinking of, of Goldsmith and also the connection with Herman that, uh, something that makes Herman Herman is he likes to switch up the band. He, uh, he was often known for not sticking with the traditional symphony orchestra setup. Um, there were a number of projects where psycho being one of them, uh, to go back to that example for a moment that he only wanted strings. Um, it was black and white, which still was done at the time in 1960, but, um, you know, uh, it was still at that point, you know, competing with color movies, but, it was a black and white film, and as has been noted elsewhere, Bernard Herrmann responded with a black and white score, quote unquote. Um, he limited himself to only strings in Psycho. Um, everything he had to do and express and underscore could only be done with strings, whether bowing or plucked, pizzicato. And what this creatively pushed him towards is not leaning on any sort of tropes or cliches, so that if something was occurring on screen that typically was something scary and could be scored with like, you know, a blast of trombones or trilling flutes. He didn't have that. He limited himself on purpose to strings. And that's what gave it such a unique quality, not only in 1960, um, but also it set a precedent uh, for horror movie scores from that point forward. And so he became known for kind of, you know, pushing the boundaries and mixing it up just simply with who was playing the music. Um, there were other examples. Um, and the other example that's infamous at this point is his score for 1966's Torn Curtain, uh, another Alfred Hitchcock movie. Um, but he, instead of the usual complement of uh, four French horns, uh, he brought in 12 French horns. So he completely beefed up the horn you know the, the french horn section you have to see if it works and the, the other what's left as far as the other sections you're working with and what kind of sound that gives your movie and it kind of changes that tone of the movie um so it doesn't you know may not sound exactly like one expects it to
Um, so, you know, what I, you know, what I want to do is play, you know, like a little bit of another score of his that I, I also really like that he did kind of mess with the, um, the orchestra a bit in terms of beefing up the brass, but, um, Jason of the Argonauts was one of my favorites and, uh, it's a great, big, spectacular fantasy film, uh, from 1962, I think, or 1960 and, uh, basically produced by Ray Harryhausen, did all the stop motion effects. Um, and Bernard Herrmann did, uh, several of these, and he sort of responds with this really massive score, but, uh, it's so heavy on the brass and percussion and, uh, with some woodwinds, I think it just is limited to the strings. I don't think I are limited. The string section is limited. I think it's really just brass woodwinds and percussion. Um, but it's a really great example of, um, how he changed things up. personality um had this sense of unrequited love i don't know if it was really even directed at anybody uh, but there were certain movies he did that the when he would score that had any sort of relationship or, or you know um a romantic relationship that it was i feel like it was always scored from the perspective of an unrequited love this longing that would never be fulfilled and um, one of the best examples of this is the music he did for The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, um, which is, a, it's a bittersweet movie. It's a great movie. It, uh, and it uh, it's very, has a very touching score. And um, there are parts of the movie that are very melancholy and lonely. And it really, uh, it seems to, again, suit him personally. And I think he responded with a really uh, lovely score and, uh, there's a fantastic, uh, just a, a really uh, beautiful main theme, and there's some really um, lovely, you know, heartbreaking parts to it, but not in a saccharine way. It feels, um, like I said, it feels melancholy, and it, it, it seems to be lonely, and yet and there's the times where it seems comfortable in its loneliness, and that can be stated. It doesn't seem like it's 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 looking for, you know, anyone to come along and make it feel better <laughs> as a piece of music. Um, so I wanted to play a little bit of uh, uh, music of his from The Ghost and Mrs. Muir.
but uh, it's just interesting when you listen to more Bernard Herrmann and you really kind of do a deep dive into his catalog and you you know start to listen to some of those scores for movies that people don't remember or they're just not as as heralded as, as the Hitchcock movies and Orson Welles you start to hear that melancholy that bittersweet quality sort of um, pervade you know so much of his music that it starts you know you start to get a sense of the man behind the music um, and uh, there, there's, a, there's definitely other examples um, outside of Ghost of Mrs. Muir and Vertigo there's also Jane Eyre um, the 1941 or 43 version of that um, and uh, you know, that quality still carries through all the way up until the end of his career so uh, I mentioned Torn Curtain earlier and basically that score uh, ended his relationship with Alfred Hitchcock and um, while this episode you know of my podcast isn't meant to be a all you know the the end-all be-all biography of Bernard Herrmann it's not supposed to be all-encompassing of everything that he did I just wanted to touch on that as far as it was basically kind of started to mark the next chapter in his career and uh, in the waning years of his life and uh, his time in Hollywood in that when Torn Curtain when he scored it for 12 French Horns um, Hitchcock and especially the studio um really uh reacted you know strongly against it and so the score after recording only a few cues was thrown out and alfred hitchcock um you know basically embarrassed bernard herman and kicked him off the movie um and uh that basically split up their working relationship they never worked together again and a different composer came in to uh to score torn curtain but Hitchcock, uh, Herman, was just so completely frustrated and, and angry at the situation, he just left Hollywood, and uh, he moved uh, to the UK. He'd always been uh, an Anglophile, from what I've read and learned, so he definitely had a love of the you know that country. But uh, he moved back to the UK, and um, I'm not sure if he ever really thought he would, uh, you know, work in movies again. I'd, I'd read different accounts over the years that. Um, he really wanted to be a great symphony conductor and he really wanted to write concert music. And there were some people that thought he only did movies to pay the bills, but then there are completely, you know, different accounts about his attitude that he took it so seriously because it was still his music and he took it seriously, whether or not he was writing Citizen Kane or Jason and the Argonauts. And, um, he still took it deadly seriously. Um, so it, there's differing accounts about it. But um, he definitely didn't you know, go, he you know, return to conducting, you know, once he had left Hollywood at that point. But what happened was interesting. And what, you know, brings me to this point is in the late 60s, there were other younger directors kind of coming up into the industry. And uh, some of them actually were seeking out Bernard Herrmann. Uh, now that his, you know, the movies he had done were starting to be discovered or starting to play at film festivals or, or sort of being shown on television, some of these younger directors in the late 60s were seeing those movies and hearing his music and wanting to know, hey, is this guy still alive? Can he score my movie? And one of those was Francois uh, Truffaut, uh, the French director. And um, he was doing an adaption of uh, Ray Bradbury's uh, seminal sci-fi classic uh, novel, Fahrenheit 451. And he sought out Bernard Herrmann. And famously, um, Bernard Herrmann had asked him, you know, why wouldn't you seek out a younger composer or, or some of the newer composers and, and, and Truffaut had responded that, uh, they would give him, 
music of the 20th century, and, and Herman would give him music of the 21st century. Um, he didn't want something that was electronic uh, for this story that's set in the near future. Um, he wanted something unique that Herman would bring to it. And so I, I wanted to circle back to that sense of melancholy, because even in this story, in this movie, the film adaption of Fahrenheit 451, he brought a sense of melancholy to it, and also he changed up his instrumental, um, the, the instrumental setup. He changed the band. Um, he basically only uses strings and percussion. Uh, so it takes... Uh, you know, it, it has that element of, well, how Psycho just had strings. Now, okay, he take that idea and strings and percussion. So he's able to use xylophone. He's able to use snares. And uh, it, again, it gives it a very unique quality. Um, and there's, there's such a unique uh, sound to strings and uh, chimes and bells. Um, and it, it gives it uh, this ephemeral quality but again, there's sort of a, a melancholy to it, a sadness to it, sort of as, as we're watching the characters in this near future, and they're going through life um, sort of with blinders on, and they're going through life uninformed about things, and they're sort of blissed out. Um, and so some of the music gets that blissed out quality, but in a very placid way, a very placid sort of way, but it's, it's, it's sad. It's basically sad in that sort of placidity. Um, but I wanted to play a bit of the, uh, the opening cue from Fahrenheit 451. Francois Truffaut wasn't the only uh, new director that was seeking out his uh, the, the unique sound that Bernard Herrmann can bring to a movie. Um, there were other directors like Brian De Palma and also Martin Scorsese that uh, sought him out. Uh, Brian De Palma had him score uh, his movie Sisters and Obsession. Obsession is almost a reworking of Vertigo. Um, and Sisters is just sort of this... Um, crazy movie about this, uh, that, I, that, uh, has this, you know, really sort of shocking murder early on in the movie. Um, but, uh, it, it also has just some strange electronics, some synthesizer in it that, uh, um, also is really unnerving. And, uh, whereas obsession sort of takes that obsessive quality, that, that whirlpool, that, that vortex is pulling you in, in vertigo and 
adds in this female choir so and an organ so it's basically the orchestra plus the choir plus this pipe organ um, and really massive scale um, and it's it's an, another one that's a fantastic score um, that is you know sounds so specifically Herman how could it not it's you know um, it, it's a, it's kind of a narrative that uh, he seemed to be attracted to it has a tragic element to it in this movie and um, it got him to play you know on some of the familiar themes that he had done in years prior but in that same year that he was doing Obsession with Brian De Palma, he also worked on Taxi Driver with Martin Scorsese. And um, another, you know, standout for his career. And it's so amazing as far as those bookends of Bernard Herrmann's career. Um, and again, not that this was meant to be a you know, biography of the man that's complete 100%, but the fact that he started with Citizen Kane in 1941, often um, heralded as one of the, the, as, as the top movie ever made, and that he ended his career in 1975 with Taxi Driver, which is, you know, one of the hallmarks of 70s cinema and of Martin Scorsese's career and De Niro's career. Um, and again, really set a, a standard um, and uh, was a real trendsetter. But the fact that he, uh, the, that uh, Martin Scorsese specifically sought out Bernard Herrmann to provide the music for this film. And he's gone on to, uh, to talk about how in his conversations with Herrmann, that he first, you know, laughed it off, that he wasn't going to be doing a movie about a taxi driver. And Scorsese had to say, well, no, no, it's not really just a movie about taxi drivers. <laughs> There's a lot more to the story than that. Um, and that he also found out that at the time, Bernard Herman was being, was getting interested in jazz and um, that he was looking to sort of incorporate something new into the score. And whether that's because of the project, because of Taxi Driver, and it takes place in New York and it, um, it could, it would suit it well. I don't know or whether it just was circumstance that on the side, Bernard Herman was getting into jazz because if he was getting into jazz, he could have used it in Bernard and Brian De Palma's obsession possibly, but he didn't. And there's no jazz elements there at all. Um, so it's just sort of interesting that I, I don't know where that started and, and, um, how that began, but it definitely fit in really well with, with taxi driver. What's, what's great about it is, um, he has a jazz element with this um, saxophone, uh, which his main theme is often played on, but also heavy brass and percussion, which come into play, you know, towards the end of the film uh, when things get a bit more violent, and it really kind of punctuates this the, the violence of the film that um, maybe even more so than just the images alone, um, the way that it's brass percussion and these real big um, harp glissandos that sort of sweep over the images. Um, it's just sort of washing it all away, uh, in, in this, you know, big, you know, cacophony of sound. Um, and then with the, the jazz element and the sax element, it really kind of paints a great picture of these montage through that, these montages of, uh, Robert De Niro's character driving through New York. And he's, uh, basically, uh, viewing what's around him on the sidewalks and in the city. And his character is, you know, just basically fed up with it all. And it's interesting that the, the jazz isn't really about his perspective in a way, because he's a character, his, he talks about it in, his, in the voiceover, that he's, he thinks the city is sick, he thinks the city is, you know, basically twisted, and it's just basically the dregs of society that live there. So, you know, but the music isn't painting that. It's not his perspective. It could have been a darker, twisted, um, uh, more sinister um, sound of the music if it was his perspective but the jazz the, the saxophone just kind of playing along 
uh, with this this melody behind him, which isn't particularly um, it, it's not particularly joyful. It's not particularly sad. It's just kind of this is melody. It just sort of it's it's just sort of like here's it is. This is New York. Um, take it or leave it. <laughs> and uh, I just thought it was, but it's a really great theme on its own. So let's hear a little bit of Taxi Driver. that he finished recording taxi driver um it's it's a well-known story um and it's been documented in you know other herman biographies and and such but he recorded he finished recording taxi driver i believe on christmas eve um and he went back to his hotel uh, i think it, i forget which hotel he was staying at in hollywood it might have been the beverly uh it might have been chateau marmont but he uh just passed away um that night and uh you know the, the, i think the joke was that uh, martin scorsese killed him <laughs> or at least his movie did but it wasn't supposed to be a particularly stressful experience um and it's just a great thing that he went on a high note and he actually wound up getting two oscar nominations uh that year so um at the oscar the oscars that, that came out in 76 he got a nomination for obsession he got a nomination for taxi driver um, but famously, he lost to Jerry Goldsmith, who won that year for The Omen, which had been a long time coming. And Jerry Goldsmith should have won three, four times before that. <laughs> he didn't. But um, nonetheless, Herman got those two posthumous nominations uh, for the work that he did. So it's just interesting that in 75, as idiosyncratic and as, and as distinct as his sound was, it was still um, being recognized uh, by those in the industry, it wasn't seen as uh, old-fashioned. And what was what's fascinating is that when he left Hollywood after splitting with Hitchcock in '66, his music had been deemed old-fashioned, and uh, his that his sound was no longer current. And that was just one of the reasons why he needed to simply take off. But by '75, uh, being discovered by younger directors like Truffaut and uh, De Palma and Scorsese. Um, his sound wasn't old-fashioned at all. It was just simply his sound. It was his own unique stamp um, on a film, and it was his own unique personal style. And there were some films that just needed it, and if they didn't have that Herman sound, they didn't have it. Um, and so what that's you know one of the things, like I said, I wanted to sort of talk about in this episode was what makes a Bernard Herman what makes a Bernard Herman score sound like a Bernard Herman score. What is that Herman sound? It's become 
sort of, uh, a, you know, basically a, a, a catch-all in some ways in the industry when people say that they want a Herman-esque sound. They want to sound, they want to score that sounds like Bernard Herman. Um, what does that mean? What, you know, what does that even mean? What, you know, do you, does that mean you sound like uh, Psycho? Which is typically, you know, what they go for as, as you know, um, as if it's doing a thriller. But it could also mean the ghost of Mrs. Muir. It could also mean you're going for that melancholy, bittersweet uh, sound. Or you're going for the obsessive, maddening quality of the vertigo that just kind of keeps pulling you in and just won't let you go. It's just this hypnotic uh, sort of, uh, whirlpool, you know, what is that, you know, what does that mean? And, and to sort of drill it down to a Hermanesque sound, it's, it's not as easy, but I, what I had wanted to do here was to highlight what I feel are, are, are hallmarks of the Bernard Herman sound as far as recognizing it. And that's something that you can listen for, uh, when watching one of the movies uh, that he scored. So I hope everybody enjoyed uh, my, uh, Herman special today. Um, like I said, it wasn't meant to be comprehensive. Um, I just wanted to kind of explore and talk about, um, what I feel like are the tenets of his, his sound so that, uh, you know, when talking about it or, you know, when, if you're interested in checking out more of his music that you kind of, you have an idea of the, the sound world that, that Herman is exploring. Um, and, uh, that if you, go in expecting, you know, something that's more uh, uh, Eric Wolfgang Korngold or John Williams, you won't, that's not his style. Um, his style is something different and something unique, um, and why I think it makes it great, and I think that's what gives it a lasting quality, is that unique stamp, that unique personality that, uh, that it has. I want to thank everyone for listening today. I hope it was fun for you as it was for me. I always find it interesting to take a deep dive into a particular composer's style and career. And uh, Herman is one of the one of the most fascinating, I think, from uh, that era of uh, Hollywood movie music. His sound still carries on today. Um, in fact, if you listen uh, closely to uh, scores by Danny Elfman and and Christopher Young. Uh, those are two composers who were heavily inspired by Herman's music, um, and they both started their careers around the same time in the early to mid-80s and incorporated that inspiration um, into their own respective styles. Um, so the more that I learned about Herman retroactively, um, the more I sort of was able to hear his influence on Elfman and, uh, and Christopher Young. But uh, of course, that can be a topic for another episode. In closing, I, I want to address a few inaccuracies that I noted in my uh, earlier statements on this episode. Mainly that uh, Taxi Driver was a 1975 release. It's actually 1976, uh, along with Obsession. Uh, although Herman did compose and record his music for both in 1975. Also, Jason and the Argonauts was released in 1963, and Fahrenheit 451 was released in 1966. So I wanted to make sure I had the correct release dates on those two films. If you're interested in learning more, uh, check out the site bernardherman.org, a really good resource. Uh, Music in today's episode was all by Bernard Herman uh, from the following films, 
Psycho, Citizen Kane, North by Northwest, Vertigo, Jason and the Argonauts, Ghost of Mrs. Mirror, Fahrenheit 451, and Taxi Driver. If you'd like to send any comments or questions, you can email the show at a score to settle podcast at gmail.com. Uh, find the blog at a score to settle dot And eventually you'll be able to find it on Twitter. So stay tuned for that information. Uh, thanks again for listening. <laughs>